Welcome to Creating a Buzz About Health podcast with Paula Carnell. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to today's episode. Now, doing a podcast, I am thinking all the time, what shall I talk about? What shall I talk about? But it's not a case of I don't know what to talk about. Any of you who've met me will know that I've always got something to talk about. But it's which story do I tell next? And the story that keeps bubbling up over the last couple of days that I feel I've really got to share. And it's one about how there is synchronicity and how the pattern of your life, when you step back or as you get further along your life, you can see how all the pieces fit together. And so bizarre things can happen and they won't seem to have any relevance. But as time progresses and as you step back further, you get to see how everything is perfect. So this is a story about incredible manifestation, about dreams coming true and following intuition. So I'm going to take you right back to about 1992. And I would keep a dream diary sort of on and off throughout my life. I'd keep a dream diary because I've always had very vivid dreams. And This particular dream, I woke up and it was so clear and so extraordinary that I just had to tell everybody about it as soon as I had it because I was just curious. And the dream was that I was sat in an airplane next to the window. So I was like to sit next to a window. And on my other side was my mother. And we were on a plane together and we were flying high. And I was looking out of the window and I could see your typical tropical island. I could see palm trees. I could see amazing sort of turquoise sea, blue skies, fluffy white clouds. And what was extraordinary was there were really large boulders, very pale gray boulders. And on the boulders were sat long haired white hippies. So there was these men with really long raggedy hair wearing sort of rolled up jeans or shorts, and they were just sitting on these boulders with their feet in the in the water or near the water. And behind them, there was a sort of industrial building. And in my dream, we were flying around and we could see this sort of bay and a harbour. And there were these boulders. And in the dream, I turned to my mum and I said, that's Cocos and it's paradise. And... Then there was a knowing, which I'm not sure if I said to my mum, but I just knew in the dream that this island was just off the Isle of Wight. Clearly, I mean, the Isle of Wight is beautiful, but, you know, desert islands with palm trees, um, you know, it, it was a bizarre thing to think about. So I woke up from this dream and thought, what was this all about? Why did I dream about this place? And back in 1992, we didn't have the internet, um, certainly not as we have now. So it wasn't possible to just look up and see where Cocos was. And I just had the name Cocos. So I was looking through my books. I do collect a lot of atlases. You know, I love maps, always loved maps. And in 1992, I hadn't traveled east. You know, the furthest I'd been was actually Russia another bizarre trip. But um, I hadn't been to Australia. I hadn't been to Thailand. I hadn't been anywhere like that. Um, So my 
visuals of the world were sort of limited to America and you know, or the Americas and um, and Europe. And although I had travelled quite a bit, you know, that was what I could visualise. So this place, Cocos, I was thinking, well, where is that? So I couldn't find it in any maps I had at home. I did find in the Caribbean there was a place called Caicos, but I knew that wasn't it. So I went to a travel agent, you know, in the old days where you'd have a travel agent and a high street. And I said, have you got any details about Cocos? And they all thought I meant Caicos. So nobody knew what I was talking about or where this place was. So then it becomes a bit more obsessive, what it does with me, because I'm like, well, why did I have this dream? Why was I with my mum? Why was I looking at the window? What's the connection with the Isle of Wight? So there was all these bizarre pieces. Now, at that time, I had an art business and a greeting card business. And part of my greeting card business was traveling around the UK, visiting some of my 700 shops that stocked my greeting cards. And one of the shops was actually part of a, a B&B. It was a little gift shop in Leyburn and some absolutely amazing people who, um, you know, I still know um, Jill now. But they actually had this gift shop and they had the B&B and we'd met them at a trade fair. And so it became a sort of part of, of our routine of traveling around the north of England that we'd stay in Leyburn with Jill and Tony. And they were retired, but their retirement business was this this B&B with a shop. So we would normally swap cards for accommodation. So it was a win-win. And they did the most amazing breakfast. And over breakfast, we'd all be talking and we had the most incredible conversations. Well, shortly after I had this dream, um, because Tony had a lot of books and while we were waiting for breakfast, I started looking through his maps and looking for books and, and some sort of clue to Cocos. And Tony was a real avid antiques collector. And in Leyburn, there's this big auction house. So he would often go to the auction house and buy things. So when he was serving the breakfast, he said, oh, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I had this dream. So I told him about the dream and he looked at me really quite astonished and then he said oh I've just got to get something and I'll come back the last week he'd gone to an auction and there was a little wooden box and on the box it said Cocos and then in brackets Keeling Islands and he brought the box out and he said look what I bought at an auction and he had no idea what it was or where Cocos was but since having bought the box because he just fell in love with the box he then did some research. So he told me all about Cocos Keeling. And Cocos Keeling is an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean between Perth and Sri Lanka. So it really is remote. And he had written, so actually he probably had the, the box a little bit before we went there because this is days before emails or years, years and years before emails. So he had done some research um, and he had all kinds of contacts from his previous work. And he discovered that the box he had was from the governor of Cocos Keeling Islands. And this, um, these islands, he found out where they were. They were actually a quarantine centre for Australia. But going back further, the islands were first discovered. They were uninhabited. And there was um, 
a captain of a ship called Cluness Ross, so in about the 1700s. And he found the islands and decided to inhabit them. There was another um, captain that I've since found out who also inhabited them. So there was two chaps that sort of inhabited the islands. And Cluness Ross was a bit of a businessman and he decided that he, because of all the coconuts, he should have a coconut factory, you know, coconut plantation. So he cleared quite a few of the islands and then planted coconut trees. And he brought in a few hundred um, Malayans to actually work on the, the coconuts and on the plantations. Now, this went on from like the 1750s until 1955 or possibly a bit later. So you have Cluness Ross, a British naval captain who finds these islands and decides to stay there and inhabit them. And the islands, you know, they, they have this sort of small community of um, of Europeans and then they have a, a larger community of Malayans and the islands really thrive. There's 26 islands sort of in a, a sort of horseshoe around a lagoon. And um, that was what was happening. Well, the British government owned these islands because of Cluness Ross had sort of state, uh, stated a claim. But on my birthday in 1955, which was before I was born, but it was still a significant date for me to read, the islands were sold or given to the Australian government. So they became an Australian territory, as they still are today. But the Australians allowed Cluness Ross and his by then coconut factory to still keep going until now I forget the date it was the 1970s I think maybe a little bit later the Australian government I don't know how they did this but they suddenly decided that the descendants of the original Cluness Ross so it's still the Cluness Ross family were actually um, running a slavery um, system which was crazy when you actually look at how the island worked. So yes, Cluness Ross employed everybody on the island. They had a job. If anybody needed to go back to Malaya to visit family, he would give them the money. They were sort of living a, a sort of community life and profits were shared and, you know, the island was thriving. People were very, very happy. But the Australian government thought, hang on a minute, he's not paying a fair wage and these people are, are stuck here working. And it's not right. So they actually expelled Cluness Ross to Australia, but his sons remained on the island. Now, going back in time, one of the original Cluness Ross descendants actually left the islands and got married and lived in the Isle of Wight in Britain. So that was quite an interesting thing for me to, to see. So there was a connection. There was a real physical connection between the Isle of Wight and Cocos Keeling. So I was like, oh, my goodness me, I need to know more. So Tony had given me the details of the governor of the islands. And I wrote to them because I was like, I've got to go there. I need to know more about this place. And as I said, there was no Internet. So you couldn't find photographs and there was no travel agents that would take you there. It turned out it was now quarantine centre for Australia. So there was um, this massive, massive sort of caged area. And so any livestock, so in particular um, food, you know, animal that would be then turned into food or animals for zoos would stop off 
at Cocos Keeling Island um, for a quarantine period, and then they would be shipped off to um, Australia. Now, the coconut factory was still running until um, the latest Clunes Ross, John Clunes Ross, was expelled. And the coconut factory would actually employ Australian travellers. So this fits in with my image of hippies. So in the 1960s and 70s, young men and young women from Australia and from all around the world, they would actually hitch a lift you know, on a ship and stop off at Cocos Keeling and work for a bit on the coconut factory. So suddenly all these things of my dream were actually being um, materialized. You know, they were true. So how on earth did I have a dream about this place? I barely watched television in those times. I don't know of any television or documentaries that were about this place. I had not looked at maps of that area. Um, there's very few books that write about Cocos Keeling. So how this came into my consciousness, I still have no idea. So having spoken to Tony, seen the box and then learned a bit more. And then I wrote to Cocos Keeling. And then about three months after I sent off a letter, I received a letter back. And it was from a teacher who was actually teaching art on, um, an, uh, um, on a boat that was sort of on the beach. And it was this art gallery and teaching centre. And she wrote to me, I was hoping that I'd be invited over and I could be an artist in residence. You know, so that was what I was hoping, but obviously didn't spell it out enough. Anyway, she sent me some pictures of the island. So I had these amazing little photographs of Cocos Keeling and of her painting in the ship. And I was like, oh, I just want to go there. She showed me pictures of the main road and she told me about the life there and, and how it all was. So I became even more obsessed. I found out that the only way to travel was either by a container ship that would stop off there, or you could fly to Jakarta and then you'd have to get a flight to, um, or even Singapore, but Singapore or Jakarta, and then you would fly to Christmas Island, which was the neighbouring island, which was between Jakarta and Cocos Keeling. So it was still about 2,000 miles away from Cocos Keeling, but that was the way in. So again, in those days, it was very difficult. You'd have to go to a travel agent and, and it, it was very complicated and very expensive. And there were no hotels on Cocos Keeling. So even if I was to get there, I'd really have to sort of hope that somebody would put me up on their floor or in a spare room. And saying that there's hardly any properties there either. So it really was a no-go, but I was obsessed. And so I was telling everybody about the dream. I was telling everybody about this place. And I was just thinking, how can I get there? How can I get there? So this goes on for years. Um, and even sort of eight or nine years later, I was given a jewellery box with marquetry done on the lid, which actually had a map of the islands. So I was that obsessed about this place. And then I had children and, you know, went through a divorce. I had my my business was growing and I was painting and then I fell ill. So all these things sort of drifted away. And every now and again, I would hear about the Indian Ocean and I would just think, oh, Cocos Keeling, how amazing. So then I recovered. I became the bee lady and I got the opportunity to set up all the bees at the Newt in Somerset. So I started that in 2017, again, not thinking at all about Cocos Keeling. And a year in and about a year before the Newt opened to the public in 2019, so back in 2018, my husband had just started working there. 
as the cellar master. And he mentioned to me that he'd got an email because there were some photographers coming over from South Africa and they were going to photograph him because he's a cellar master. And it was all for the brochures and the publicity for the new when it opened. And I remember either noticing or him saying that one of the names on the emails was Clunas Ross. Now, that's a really unusual name. So that instantly made me think about Cocos Keeling. But I didn't do anything about it. I just completely forgot about it. And I wasn't going to be photographed because I was, you know, I'm not an employee. And, and you know, so it, I didn't come up on the, the schedule. And then um, when the photographers were over here, so it's a husband and wife team, um, they... I got this message saying, oh, are you around? Because the photographers would like to take a photograph of you and your bee suit and with some bees. So we'll do some quick photos. So luckily I was around. So I went over to the newt, put my bee suit on. It was May, but it was wet and cold and there was some wisteria. So I was, you know, positioned with some beeswax comb and frames and bits of beehives. <clears throat> and I was chatting away. And when I stood underneath this wisteria, and of course for photographs, you sometimes have to stand in a pose that looks natural but actually doesn't feel natural and then you have to hold it so you're sort of in a in a weird sort of twisted bit and I was in this sort of odd position next to all this trailing wisteria and they were chatting to me about um, bees and about honey and then Duke mentioned that he doesn't like honey and I'm like oh that's odd so how come and he said oh my brother keeps bees now, he'd already mentioned that his brother had a clam business. And because the couple had come from South Africa, I just assumed they were from South Africa. So can you tell where this is going? So I then said, oh, where does he keep bees? And he said, oh, Cocos Keeling Islands. And I was like, no, Cocos Keeling Islands. Everything stopped. He's like, you sound like you've heard of these islands. I'm like, have I just? So I told him about my dream. and about Tony and about all the things I'd learned and how I'd always wanted to go there. Then, as I was telling him, I realised this was Duke Clunas Ross. This was one of the descendants of the original Clunas Ross. And he was taking my photograph. I mean, how bizarre is that? You just could not make it up. So he was born there. He grew up there barefoot. It was his father that was expelled. And it's his brother who still lives on the islands with a clam farm, but also keeping bees. I was just blown away. I couldn't wait to tell Greg and say, oh, my goodness me, you will not believe who I met today and what this means. So I could not have had that meeting with Duke without then thinking, right, we've just got to go. We have got to go. I don't care how we do it. We've just got to go. So it took a bit of a while. So this is May 2018. But by a year later, we'd booked our flights and we were planning our trip. And it was for January 2020. Interesting year. So we managed to get flights. We decided to go the northern route. So through Jakarta, I think there was something in me that just always knew I had to go that way. You can now fly to Perth and you can get direct flights up to Cocos Keeling. But I just wanted to do Jakarta. So it was quite a long flight. I think we had to go through Oman and change. And then we went to um, um, Kuala Lumpur 
for a, a sort of refueling and then we got to Jakarta. And the problem with getting to Cocos Keeling, particularly the route we went, is you're reliant on little planes that take you from Jakarta to Christmas Island. And then twice a week, there's flights from Christmas Island to Cocos Keeling. So you've got to plan your trip, but with enough leeway that if there's bad weather and the flights can't run, you don't get stranded either off the islands or on one of the islands. So I have a brilliant travel agent called Maria. And so she worked out all of this, these logistics. And we, um, we found that we had three nights on Christmas Island. If the flight from Jakarta would go to plan, we'd have three nights on Christmas Island. And then we would take a flight to Cocos Keeling and we'd have 10 nights on Cocos Keeling. Then we'd come back and have one night on Christmas Island and then fly back to Jakarta where we'd have two or three nights before our flight home. So it gave us a little bit of scope if we got stuck anywhere. Um, so we headed off. Now, as we were planning the trip, I had never even thought about Christmas Island. I mean, it's one of those places you've heard of, but you have no idea where it is. Turns out there's two Christmas islands. So there's one that's sort of Fijian-ish, you know, in that area in the Pacific. And then there's the one near Cocos Keeling and Jakarta. Um, and the one near Cocos Keeling is like a big rock that comes out of the sea covered in ancient forest. And it's a phosphorus mining island. So the main beach has this awful rusty crane and a big rusty pier that is basically for massive ships that are collecting the phosphorus that's being mined off the off the island. So it's not a picturesque place. It's not somewhere that many people want to go to. However, it has something very, very unique about it because not many people live there. There's about a thousand people live on this whole island. And it does have a detention centre. So that's its probably most recent fame is it has a detention centre for Australia, which had just closed when we went there because, you know, the island is literally a rock that comes out of the sea and any beaches are tiny little beaches. The rest of it is covered by forest. So you can imagine people trying to come from Indonesia or um, the Philippines and they would come in these little boats and it, you know, doesn't bode well. And you know, the conditions, although it's a big um, detention centre, it is very, very remote. But that was, you know, that and the mine were the main employment of um, the islands. And then you have sort of government workers from Australia who will come and do two year stints. So we started looking into Christmas Island thinking, well, where are we going to stay there? And I know we're flying around the world. I know about the, the non-green implica implications of travel. However, my soul, my heart, my mind, my soul, everything was saying I have to do this trip, but I need to do it as sustainably as possible. Now, the thing is with with remote islands that the majority of the food is shipped in, which is not sustainable. And I like to think that if somebody's on an island, they could be self-sustaining. So we were looking and there was all sorts of B&Bs and hotels. Um, and the island is the Red Crab Island. So that's its its other fame. It's more um, favourable fame is this massive migration of red crabs that travel out from the forest, go down to the beaches, into the ocean, and then they shake off their eggs. They lay their eggs. And then a few weeks later, all the eggs hatch that were in the ocean and they all the crabs go back then into the forest. So you have these two amazing dates. And people plan years in advance, absolutely years in advance, to be on the islands when these red crabs are moving, either for the hatching or for the, the shedding of the eggs into the sea. 
we weren't worried about any of that. We just needed a stop off on our way to Cocos Keeling. But as we started to look into it, it started to get a bit more interesting. And as we were looking for accommodation, I thought, I do not really want to be in a and b where I'm eating tin baked beans. And, you know, I, I, I want to I want to stay somewhere as sustainable as possible. And there happens to be an eco lodge on Christmas Island called Swell Lodge. And the moment I saw that, I was like, oh, my goodness me, that's where we've got to stay. They have a three night minimum stay and it is completely sustainable. It is this tent, I suppose, on stilts that's built on top of the rock. So it makes no impact on the environment. It has compost loo, compost, you know, kitchen and bathroom. And the bed, you just lay on the bed and you've got these whole wall of, of windows and you look out onto a balcony and the sea, the ocean. I mean, it's just you see the sunrise, see the sunset. And it's the other side of the island from where all the tourists go and where the airport is. So the only way to get there was being picked up by the owners of these lodges in the only truck in the world that has a crab scraper on the front. So it's like this truck which has these sort of fans on the front, which literally push the, the crabs out of the way. Because what happens when the crabs are migrating, all the roads are shut on Christmas Island. We didn't know any of this. But once I saw Swell Lodge, it was like, OK, it's sustainable. It fits in with all my values and it looks incredible. And it would be a great place for us to sort of recover from jet lag as we come over from the UK before we get to Cocos Keeling. It was a lot of money. However, it, it turned out if we hadn't done that, we would have had an awful time because because all the roads were shut. If we had gone to a cheaper B&B and because it was Chinese New Year and much of the population is um, Malaysian or Chinese, they all go home. They go back to their native countries to to see all their family over Chinese New Year. So shops were shut, restaurants were shut. Um, and we were, you know, like middle January. So if we had stayed in the B&B, there would have only been a choice of one restaurant, I think, and one supermarket that we could have survived from. We could not have hired a car and we couldn't have driven anywhere because the roads were shut because the crabs were all over the road. So you couldn't drive anywhere. So by staying at Swell Lodge, the other thing that's amazing is they have a private chef and he comes to your lodge and cooks for you. So you have food and it's all foraged. So it's fished from the ocean, it's it's foraged from the forests, it's fruit and vegetables that are all grown on the island. And it was the most incredible food. So we had this, this chef who would cook for us. And because Swell Lodge want to make sure you get the best experience, they do tours and guides. And because they have this truck that can drive around, we actually got to see the islands. We got to see parts that other people wouldn't see. And would you believe this? The day after we arrived was the day that the crabs ran down to the ocean to shake the eggs off their bodies into the sea. This is the kind of thing that, you know, David Attenborough filmed and, you know, took years to plan. And it just so happens that the three nights we're there, this is happening right, happening right in the middle of it. And it all got me to thinking, I thought, so my dream, my desire to go to Cocos Keeling, was it really 
about finding Christmas Island. Was this where I was meant to be? And of course, I'm thinking about bees. I'm thinking, so where are the bees on Christmas Island? So I went to the museum and we chatted to people and there are honeybees there because at some point somebody had carried honeybees over to the island. There was nobody keeping bees at the moment, but you could see honeybees around. So they're obviously living wild. Whatever had happened, you know, they'd gone off and, and live wild. And the island is actually very, very difficult to grow food in because you've got all the crabs and they have these massive what they call robber crabs that um, the photographer who was with our one of our tours, she'd actually had a camera pinched by one of these these um, crabs. I mean, they're, they are giant, giant crabs, quite scary. So not a place to go if you if you're not too keen on crabs, but you do get to see so many of them that you get quite used to them. Um and so there were honeybees there. But what intrigued me was nobody had done a bee audit to see what other bees were there. And we're not that far away from where the largest bee in the world, which was thought to be extinct, the Wallace bee, had been found. And I was thinking this is exactly the kind of environment where you could have all kinds of crazy bees that have been there for millions of years and nobody's noticed. So I was looking around for bees, but we didn't go really deep into the forest because there was a lot of crab movement so it wasn't you know the rest of the year the crabs are sort of hiding in the ground and you can walk around and it's not quite so intimidating but when they're all moving and you're trying to go against the flow into the forest it's it's not so easy so um I was really intrigued about this so why are we at Christmas Island and we got to stay at Swell Lodge and if anybody wants to go to I think the best eco five-star lodge in the world and have the best food then you have to go to swell lodge so it was amazing and i'm so pleased that we did it and it meant that we were really rested by the time we then flew to cocos keeling so when we flew to cocos keeling duca told his brother that we were coming and so we were met at the airport by his brother and his nephew jack and it turns out jack now does most of the beekeeping and cocos keeling is is a really interesting place it is it's got that aura of outback Australia so you've got 26 islands but two of them are inhabited so you've got um, home island and west island and one of them has all of the Cocos Malay community who are all growing their own food in their backyards and and Islamic so you've got a mosque and you've got this whole community on one island on the other island you've got the Australians and there's about a hundred Australians or Europeans, and then you have about 600 Cocos Malay. And um, and that's what the islands are made up of. And you have this little ferry that goes between the two islands. So the Cocos Malay will come over to the, um, the European island and, and do some work in the supermarket or in some of the restaurants. Um, and then you've got the tourists going over to the other island where the Cocos Malay are, which is where the Clunes Ross original home is and where the coconut factory is. Now, what was extraordinary was flying from Christmas Island to Cocos Keeling. I was expecting to have a reenactment of the dream with my mum. And I was thinking, I'm going to be flying. I'm going to look out of the window and I'm going to see the islands and I'll see the boulders. Now, there really aren't a lot of pictures about Cocos Keeling around. I mean, we had to search hashtags and, and basically it was tourist pictures. And none of the pictures had boulders in. It was all desert beaches, you know, just absolutely sandy beaches um, and no boulders. So I thought, this is really odd. Why did I dream about that? Anyway, the first day we went over to the, um, the main island 
we were on the ferry and as we drew into the port I saw the big warehouse building that was the coconut factory and all around were these big boulders and I could see all the big boulders and that was the bit I'd seen in my dream so my dream I'd flown over that area anyway when we flew in the flight from Christmas Island to Cocos Keeling was mainly full of residents who were coming back from their Chinese New Year holiday in Malaysia or Australians who'd been to Bali for Christmas. So everybody on the plane seemed to know each other and they all had these big boxes of food. So they were all just bringing food back in. Um, and we just had our suitcases of clothes. So, you know, the, the customs thought it was a bit odd when we came in and we didn't have a big box of food. Anyway, um, as we were on the plane, I was desperate to sit by a window and of course I didn't know which side to sit on and I'm trying to think visualize I'm thinking okay we're going that way which way is the air, airport how are we going to come into land I did have a window seat but I was on the wrong side of the plane oh my gosh and you cannot imagine how or maybe you can I'm a very emotional person and I just I was bereft absolutely bereft but there was a couple sat next to us two girls who lived on the islands and I was able to give her my camera. So as I came into land, the only thing I saw was big sandbag bags along the edge of the water's edge and, you know, a bit of forest. And then I saw, you know, we came into the runway and I saw the main village. Um, so I didn't get that view of the lagoon. I didn't get to see what I thought were all the boulders and things that I'd hoped to see. But this girl had take, taken my camera and just took lots of pictures for me. So that was that was really good. But I was quite emotional. And then we get to the airport and you have to go through all of customs. And it's just a tiny little building. And um, then you come out and the whole of the island have come to meet everyone who's come in from this plane, partly because they're bringing in food, but also it's family who've been away for Christmas and New Year. So... It was just quite an amazing atmosphere. And they have right next to the airport building, there is a bar and it's a duty free bar. And that's where everybody was and everybody ate. So on the days of the flights, when the flights come in, they do a barbecue and and that's where everybody is. And they're all drinking and socialising. So we got to meet everybody from Cocos Keeling on that first night. So that was quite incredible. And we met um, Jack who keeps the bees. So he was incredible because he invited me out to come and see the bees. And this was another amazing thing because I started to think, gosh, I had that dream in 1992. And here I am in 2020, actually on the islands. And I'm not here as an artist. I'm here as a beekeeper. And there was nothing in the early 90s that ever indicated I'd be interested in bees. So it was just magical. If I'd gone there in the 1990s and painted some pictures of palm trees and some tropical flowers, that would have been it. So it was just amazing how everything had worked. And Jack was wonderful. So he was um, took me out to see some of the, the hives. And there was quite a few things that I learned. So he was using Langstroth hives, wooden um, flow hives that they had, which come from Australia. And he had the Appy May plastic hives. Now, I'd met um, Emre, whose father and he had designed the plastic hives. And I've, I think I've talked about them before. And um, the thing with the plastic hives was I was like, oh, no, 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 plastic is bad. But Emre had explained to me that there are parts of the world where trees are really endangered, which 
you know, I'm even more acutely aware of now. And I'm thinking, no, 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 you know, we can't be cutting down trees at all, let alone to make a beehive. So I started to be a bit more open minded about these hives. But what was interesting, Cocos Keeling is in the tropics. So it's hot and humid all year round. And so wood rots. And when you've got bees, you know, really healthy colonies of bees that just keep expanding because there's no predators there. You've got an Islamic community who generally, you know, aren't sort of harvesting lots of honey or they're not selling all the honey. So they're dependent on tourists. But because it's Australia, it's really difficult for anyone to take anything out anyway. So you basically have a honey factory on these islands, you have the bees that are free to go wherever they want. You've got 26 islands and a lot of the islands, because they're not inhabited, they're just full of forest and there's incredible trees. It's not just palm trees. So Jack took us out to see a wild colony in an ancient tree, beautiful, beautiful tree. And, um, you know, there's wild bees there. So there's a big enough space for the bees to mate and for you to have good genetic diversity. And the bees are so calm. I mean, we're walking up to the hives barefoot, shorts on. You know, I brought my suit. So I had a I had bought a suit jacket. So I had my veil on and we were handling them without any gloves and they were just lovely. But what was interesting. So there's two things. The hives are interesting. The problem with Cocos Keeling is everything has to come in by plane or ship, which increases the cost. And then if you've got wood, because it's so humid, the wood rots. And the cost of keep replacing beehives is just astronomical. Now, I'm thinking, having been to Oman and seen the date palm hives, I'm thinking, oh, well, they could use hollowed out date palms here. But there isn't that sort of holistic thinking. There's like, well, we've come from the West. This is what we do. You know, we have a, a hive box. And what was incredible to me was to see that the plastic hives were the best thing for that island. They you know, they gave the bees good insulation. There was plenty of room in them. They were easy to move around, easy to lift, easy to harvest honey from. And you only need them once. You only need to buy the hives once. Not a great business model for um, for the maker of the hives, but really, really good for the beekeeper. So that was a great experience for me to see these hives and see where they really work. And the ironic thing is, that a few years before the islands had apparently you know had their 15 minutes of fame when a conservationist had visited the islands and filmed a documentary about the astronomical amount of waste and plastic that was being washed up onto the outer reef beaches now these are beaches that are quite difficult to get to and we did we canoed out to the south island and we trekked through the the forest and then went round the beach right on the reef which is quite scary actually because you're looking out at massive ocean and I know because I'd looked at all the maps there is a really really deep trench I mean it's the Java trench which is like one of the deepest trenches in the in the ocean so you know behind you in the lagoon it looks like you could paddle across because it's just all turquoise and shallow and sandy and then you look out to the sea and not only have you got giant waves but it's almost black you know it's such dark water because you can see how deep it is and you have this reef that protects the islands but it was bringing in where there was a sort of a, a break or that the island was the edge of the reef you have all this rubbish um shipped in and it's coming from all around the world and it just stops you know it just lands at Cocos Keeling and stops and because it's so difficult to get to you can't move it so it just piles up there but 
if you know you have to make a special effort to go there and see there but it does help you see how how much rubbish we have and where does it go and you think of all the uninhabited islands or uninhabited by humans but previously inhabited by wildlife how the impact it has on them with all this rubbish coming in so it's quite ironic that perhaps the hive to save the bees of Cocos Keeling is a plastic hive when the island was known for its plastic rubbish so we worked with that but going back to when Duke told me that he doesn't like honey I tasted some of the Cocos Healing honey and it was really healing honey and it was really dark. So I was thinking, oh, it's going to be a honeydew. I tasted it and it literally burnt my throat and I didn't like it either. And it was like, oh, gosh, I've traveled all this way, followed my dreams and the honey isn't really very nice. So I went to the bees with Jack and we were opening up the hive and harvesting some honey. And I noticed that he was using the smoker. But the bees were really calm. And this is when I realise how much our behaviour is influenced by what we're taught. And when you start beekeeping, you're obviously quite scared and nervous. And so you'll want to use a smoker because you're told that that calms the bees. So if the more anxious you are, the more you use the smoke. And I often think when you're watching beekeepers and particularly in big, big groups, there is this sort of habit of, okay, we go to the hive, puff, puff. Now we're going to lift the lid, puff, 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 puff. Now we're going to take off the frame, you know, take off the boxes, puff, 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 puff. And there's all this puff, 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 and it is almost like a rhythm. But when I was in Oman, when they would use a smoker, they would have herbs in there and they would use a smoker as a medicinal um, sort of a, a puff of essential herbal um, oils that would then they would do one puff and just drift it across the front of all the hives so the amount of smoke those bees were getting was minuscule compared to what we do in the west when we're taught to go puff 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 puff, puff. and you know if somebody was to puff smoke in my house I'd be really <laughs> really upset and anxious about it so it's yeah you know, we have to think about what we're doing so we took the hive apart and and the lid was full of honeycomb we put that to one side and we were taking honey. We're actually taking it from a flow hive, but there was so much honey, it was easier to sort of do that over a bucket. And um, and so we were taking the honey. And then when we went to put the hive back together again, we had spare lids and stuff. So I suggested we took back the lid with all the cut comb in. And Jack was like, oh, no, we do. You know, we don't do that. We don't really have the comb. And I said, well, let just humor me because I'd like to try it. And we took it back and you could tell that where the smoke hadn't been on the cut comb, the honey was delicious. It was a completely different type of honey to the honey that had been smoked. But if you've only ever tasted the smoked honey, you you get adapted to it. So the clue, the clue for you is if you're tasting honey, and it, it, particularly if it's dark, then, you know, um, and it doesn't taste like molasses, then there's a chance that it's dark because it's just been smoked. But you feel a sort of burning in your throat. Now, I've never smoked cigarettes, but I have been in environments where people do smoke cigarettes. And I know that when you breathe it in, you um, you get that sort of tickle in your throat. And that's what you get when you taste a honey that's been over smoked. It sort of burns your throat. You do get some honeys that have a natural warmth or a burning sensation. But there's a very distinct difference when a honey has been over smoked. So I was so excited about this because I thought, oh, my goodness me, 
this can transform their honey. They'll be able to sell the honey. They'll be able to export it. And also that could create work for more of the Cocos Malay, who with their Islamic heritage could be using more spiritual practice in their beekeeping. Australians are not known for their spiritual practice um, and particularly on a survival desert island. Um, and so I would love to have been able to stay or go back and actually work with the communities. So replacing some of the jobs that were lost when the coconut factory was shut because the government shut it down. So there's lots and lots of interesting things. And then to go back to Christmas Island and do a bee audit, I was like, oh, my goodness me, this is this is where I want to be. Greg loved it, too. He loved the relaxed lifestyle. They have a golf course, which is actually across the um, the runway. So I love the wildness and the the culture of the, the Cocos Malay. And Greg loved the completely relaxed comfort of a Western life, but on a desert island. So between us, we were like, we want to come here. We want to be able to retire here. This would just be our place. This is our little bit of heaven. And the night before we left, there is the whole island get together and play golf across the runway because there aren't planes that day. And um, everybody's got their little tinnies and just going around and you're putting groups. So it's very relaxed. It's not a, com well, it is a competitive golf game, but not, um, not in the way that you'd be used to. And while we were playing golf, the, um, the governor of the island came to find us. Now, we hadn't um, arranged to have any Wi-Fi on the island, so we were completely off-grid while we were there. And what we didn't know was what was happening in Wuhan and what was happening around the world. And so the governor found us and he said, oh, your flight tomorrow might be cancelled. Now, bear in mind that if we couldn't get off the island, that meant we could miss the the flight from Christmas Island back to Jakarta and then miss our international flight back home. So this is quite stressful. And he told us about this outbreak of a virus in China. And because so many people from China were coming back either through, you know, through um, Christmas and Cocos going back to Australia, or they were inhabitants of both islands, there was a real risk that the islands would be quarantined. And then there was the decision by the Australian government that the detention centre on Christmas Island would be opened again as a quarantine centre for Australian nationals who were returning from China and the Far East before they went back to, um, to Australia. So we had basically a sleepless night as we were trying to think, what are we going to do? And it was very difficult to get hold of the airlines um, because it was a small company that just did the, the shuttle from, um, we would be on Virgin to get to Christmas Island, but then it was like a small plane that went from Christmas Island back to Jakarta. So Virgin were flying, but we might have had to divert and go back to Perth and then find a flight from Perth back to the UK. So again, Maria, travel agent was brilliant. She was sort of holding flights for us and waiting to see what we'd have to do, but that would have like doubled the price of our trip so we really did not want to have to do that and thankfully we got to Christmas Island and they said no it's okay you'll have a flight and we thought well at least if we got to Christmas Island you know we're, we're on our way and you know even if we have to get a boat but we might be able to get back to Jakarta that way so we did and then we had a night in a local B&B in in Christmas Island and actually I've got two more stories so 
when we got in, we checked into the B&B. It was an English lady on the, the desk. So not an Australian accent, an English accent. And she said, oh, where are you from? And we said, well, England, Somerset. And she went, oh, she goes, that's funny. She said, you're the second couple from Somerset I've had in a week. And um, it turned out she was from Somerset as well. She lives in Western Supermare and her son has this property and he was on holiday. So she was out there just running the B&B for him while he was away. But the other couple who had traveled back to Christmas Island a few days before us, we'd actually met them on our first day on Cocos Keeling. We were walking around the island, really chilled out, just glad to be there, no plans. And um, we'd gone and had breakfast in the, the Salt Cafe, which is just an incredible place on the beach. And they said, oh, yeah, you can get the ferry across to the other island. And there's the gallery because I wanted to find this boat on a beach. Um, where years ago I'd been sent photographs and from the artist who'd run it and um, and he said oh yeah you can hire a buggy uh, a little moped so they told us where to go and get the moped so we went to this house it's all unlocked nobody there turns out they'd gone on holiday and that's the thing with Cocos Keeling the keys are left in the cars on the bikes houses are left unlocked so they'd gone on holiday so we came out and we thought hmm what are we going to do? And then we saw the little bus, the little island bus that takes people from the main centres to the ferry. So we ran and waved down the bus, climbed on the bus, and there were three couples on the bus. So the driver said, where do you want to go? And we said, oh, are you going to the ferry? He said, yes. So we climbed aboard. The couple in front of us said, oh, you sound English. And we said, yes. And where are you from? Where are you from? We said Somerset. They said Somerset. We said, where in Somerset? They went oh, near Wincanton. We said, oh, we're near Wincanton. We're in Castle Carey. And they said, we're in Castle Carey too. How amazing is that? We had not seen them before. They hadn't seen us or known us before, but we knew their neighbours. So Greg was chatting to them. Meanwhile, the couple sat behind us, tapped me on the shoulder and they said, did we hear you say you come from Castle Carey? And I was like, yes. Now they were an Australian couple, but they said, well, that's incredible. They said, because some of our oldest friends emigrated from Australia back to England or to England about 30 years earlier and they moved to a little village near Castlecarry and I said oh tell me what village that was and they went well you won't have heard of it and I said just try me Galhampton so Galhampton is where my workshop is now and then I said well I know Galhampton so what were the names of your friends and it was actually John Robinson, who was an artist, an amazing sculptor and an incredible mentor of mine. So when I had the gallery, John Robinson used to come in. I had a colour photocopier, so he used to use this. He was somebody who really gave me the strength and confidence to keep going when things were hard with my paintings, when silk painting wasn't accepted. And he was just incredible. And we had the most amazing conversations. And his wife, Margie, was, again, an angel but she had passed away um, not long before we came away and they didn't know she passed away. They'd just known they hadn't had a Christmas card from her this year. So on a bus with eight people on, six of them had connections with Castle Carey and Galhampton. So if anyone says there's no such thing as coincidence or synchronicity or dreams, I'm like, no, 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 no. Everything happens for a reason everything is connected and what's more what connects 
everything and everybody is bees. If it wasn't for the bees, I wouldn't have gone there. So isn't that magical? And I hope that by sharing this story, it helps you think more about what are your dreams trying to tell you? What little hints are you getting when you do have a dream? What little um, snippets are opening your soul and your heart into what you can, how you should be living your life? Now, as it happened, we left Christmas Island as the big military planes were coming into the airport full of medical professionals, all dressed in PPE. That was quite scary. And going back to Jakarta and everybody was wearing masks and, you know, it it was an interesting time. But none of us could imagine what was going to unfold through the rest of that year. But I can tell you this, there has not been a day since when we regretted lashing out spending all our pennies to get us to Cocos Keeling. That trip gave us hope right through the dreadful time that came ahead for so many. And it was confirmation that I had made my dream come true. And whatever happened after that, it doesn't matter because I could close my eyes and I could be back in any part of Cocos Keeling Island's or even Christmas Island, or Swell Lodge, just by shutting my eyes. I can breathe in, I can hear the sounds, I can smell it, and there I am, back in paradise. So my dream of flying over an island and saying that's Cocos and it's paradise was absolutely right. And I feel so very, very grateful and blessed that I was able to actually experience it for real, to experience my dream. I don't think there was any luck. We could quite easily have just said, oh yeah, one day, one day, and not taken action. We did take action. It was a gamble. It was very expensive. But the fact we didn't get to travel again until last year meant that we just combined three or four years worth of of good trips into one trip beforehand. So the universe had our back. The bees called me and we went and I cannot wait until I can return. And I would love to spend time there working with the bees, working with all the communities and doing a bee audit in the jungles of Christmas Island. So I hope this has inspired you. Do share, do message me, you know, on Instagram or whatever and tell me about your dreams. Tell me about something magical that's happened in your life or what you've managed to manifest. So um, I'm going to leave it now. I think this has probably been my longest episode to date. When you get to watch the images or watch the video of this, I've actually got this book. We did a photo album of our our time at Cocos Keeling. And so it's just wonderful to sit on a dark, wet, cold winter's night and flip through our pictures of Cocos Keeling and the wonderful, wonderful memories we have of not only the islands, but the people, very, very special people that we met there. So full of gratitude, full of hope, full of enthusiasm and looking forward to what else life is going to present to us. So have a great day. And if you've enjoyed this, please share. If you want to know more about what I'm doing and what I'm dreaming about, then do subscribe to my newsletter. And every week I share my latest thoughts.
Bye for now. This podcast has been produced and edited by the wonderful B. Brook. And the music was created especially for me by Raya. Thank you very much. You have to become yourself. Join us Open next time on heart. Creating a Buzz Open About Health heart. podcast with Paula Carnell. Buzz you later.